Thank you, Mike. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Central. If you guess about us, my name is Craig, and uh, today I would invite you, please, to open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1, we are going to be looking at the entire chapter today. Now, I must say, when I'm given a chapter to speak on, it's a little bit intimidating um, because it once took me two and a half years to preach through one gospel, and I've got to get through one chapter in about 45 minutes. So uh, it's a little bit of fun. But to help me on that one, we have prepared a companion guide uh, that will help you. This is focused on application, uh, and so a number of the themes that I will pick up today actually are driven uh, by what we read in that companion guide. If you want to take that, you can just download that companion guide, use the QR code. Another way of doing that is you can go onto our website, you can go to the current series, and in there, there will also be a link that you can hit, and you will be able to download that, in addition to which we've also got questions outside if you would like the questions. So lots of ways to take you into uh, this chapter in ways and uh, to a depth that I can't uh, have the, well, I, I can't do it in 45 minutes, just the way I'm wired. Um, I, like to, I like to teach, and when I teach, I hate scraping the top of a barrel. Do you understand what that is? It's basically, I, I, I read the text and I just get hung up on one word, and I just can go a million different directions with this. It's kind of what Sam today. We're going to look at uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1 today, and there was one word that jumped out on me, and I'm just going to camp on this word because I think it's something that really describes a challenge that I think we've got as believers in the church, in the developed world today, but also it's a word that really helps us understand what Timothy's challenge was as he accepted the role to step into leading the church in Ephesus. And, and this letter of 1 Timothy is designed to prepare Timothy to lead the church in Ephesus. So, 1 Timothy chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus. And now stop there. A couple of things to note. Firstly, three times in this opening uh, section, but I think it's four times in this chapter, Paul uses the phrase Christ Jesus, not Jesus Christ. Many people think Jesus is his first name, Christ is his surname. That's not the case. Christ is a Christological title. It is the Greek version of the Hebrew word Messiah, which means the anointed one. So what we have here, quite clearly from the beginning, from the outset, is Paul telling Timothy the basis of his own apostolic ministry and the basis of every person who claims to serve Jesus Christ from this point on. It is the proclamation of the person Jesus, who was God's anointed Messiah, the one who God sent to save us from our sin. This is going to be all over this first chapter. That's the the, the foundation for the chapter. Now, the word that jumped out at me here may uh, be surprising to you. It's this command to stay there. Stay there. In AD 61-62, Paul would have written the letter of Ephesians to the church at Ephesus. AD 63, approximately, 
about a year, 18 months after that, Paul wrote 1 Timothy to Timothy. AD 67, approximately, Paul wrote 2 Timothy to Timothy. In 2 Timothy, Paul tells Timothy, I want you to leave Ephesus, come to Rome, bringing John Mark with you, and oh, I am sending Tychicus the other way. So what we have here in this brief kind of introduction is the idea that Paul wants people, key people, to stay in Ephesus. Stay there. 2022 was the year when people didn't stay in their jobs, they left them. Ministry was not immune from that. Barna, the research group, tells us that about 42% of pastors seriously considered leaving the ministry in 2022, citing stress, isolation, and political division as the major reasons for that. So all over the country, people left one thing and went to another. So we're in a season, aren't we, where people seem to be breathing the air of transience. We're packing our boxes, we're loading them into our vehicles, believing that what we are looking for is anywhere but where God has placed us right now. It used to be that getting people to go was the major challenge. I know in the service today, we've got uh, a couple of people, one missionary family that I met from Mozambique that have obeyed that challenge to go. We've got another family, I believe, that are just preparing to go to Nicaragua. It used to be that the challenge we had in the church was to mobilize people to go. Now it seems that the challenge we have in the church, in our current context, is encouraging people to stay. People are leaving their jobs, leaving ministries, walking out on churches, believing that somewhere else is far more significant than staying where they are. Paul says, Timothy, stay. Ephesus was a, a critical hub in the ancient world. It was a trade center. It had the second largest library after Alexandria. Uh, people would come, people would go. The Ephesian church was the who's who of, of kind of acclaimed teachers in the Christian church. Teachers would come, teachers would go, and it was into that context that Paul issued those words to Timothy, stay there. Now, this isn't a power play from an autocratic leader who believed that he had the right to tell people to go. In the context of his ministry, he did. But there was more to this word stay than that. See, what we've reached at this point in the development of the Christian church is that age where the church, having been led by apostles and prophets and itinerant missionaries and ministers, is slowly seeing those leaders either die or not be as mobile as they once were. 
And so what we have in this letter is a number of passages where Timothy is being charged with appointing local leaders to lead a local church. What we have in this command to stay reflects an emerging pattern in the church at this point in time where the church needs to embrace local leaders leading local churches. And over the next 100 years, that structure continued to develop and it continued to formalize. And eventually, local churches would no longer be churches led by itinerant missionaries. No, a new way of organizing the church was developing, and that is what we would call a pastor, okay, a leader supported by a local congregation, which is why later on in the book, uh, Paul says to Timothy, remember, a leader is worth double honor. There's a monetary connotation to that. So you see here, the command to stay is actually reflective of a move of God over the church that as the church had grown, now leadership needed to be organized. And so what we have here then in this command to stay is not simply a display of Paul's authority, but a demonstration of the church's increasing maturity. Anyone who knows anything about the Apostle Paul knows that sending mattered to him. He, in fact, was an apostle. He was a, a sent one. But the point we're discovering here is that there's a purpose to sending. The purpose to being sent is that something, or better, someone actually stays behind. The point is, our sending is only successful if something remains. This is the idea here. Stay there in Ephesus. And it's so easy to, to read over a word like that and, and to miss how significant this is. It actually tells us that God's plan in establishing the church to push back evil was actually starting to bear fruit. As the disciples and the apostles had been sent so they were successful because something was staying behind. Now, this whole idea of staying and sending, or sending and settling, traces all the way back to the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden, God created Adam and Eve, and He told them to go forth and multiply. They were not supposed to settle in Eden. They were supposed to extend the sacredness of the shalom, the peace, the, the majestic rule of God that was experienced perfectly in the garden through to the ends of the world. But in Genesis chapter 3, we recognize that the fall happened, and then the Tower of Babel happens, and true, true enough, the people do scatter but it's not shalom that they take with them. It's the chaos and the brokenness of sin. And so God's purposes are outworked through Jesus Christ, and He says that He would build His church. He would build it up so that nothing, not even the gates of hell, would prevail against it. And so what we have here is 
this idea that this church is not supposed to wait in Jerusalem, but to wait for the Spirit of God in Jerusalem, and after the Spirit has come, He would propel them into the world where they would proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to all who would listen, would be, all who would listen would be given the right to become the sons and the daughters of God, and in that moment, the gospel is starting to bear fruit, and as the gospel bears fruit, so the church of Jesus Christ is established in that place, and it's because the church is being established in places all over that ancient world that now we reach the point where there's the need for local leaders to lead local churches in these strategic places around the world. You see, sending and staying actually serve the same eternal purpose. Sending and staying are two sides of the same coin. One isn't better than the other. Sending is only successful when something or someone stays behind. Sending matters, but staying matters just as much. So, here's the question. Why doesn't it always feel like that? Why do we hear of stay-at-home moms, for example, feeling so unappreciated that their work doesn't count? Why do so many people feel that because they weren't called to go to Mozambique or, or Nicaragua or somewhere else in the world, that their, their ministry where God has called them to stay doesn't matter as much? Why in the last 12 months have so many people become envious of those people who quit while they have stayed exactly where they were before? What I love about this word, stay, is the affirmation that it gives to people who have, well, stayed. It's so easy to believe that the grass is greener somewhere else, that God didn't call me to this place or it would be a lot easier than it is, or this can't be the place where I'm needed because, look, what good is it doing? If you think about it, there are so many ways that you and I undermine the significance of us staying faithful to where God has called us to be. All too often, we fool ourselves into thinking that to be significant, something has to change. And sometimes it does. But sometimes the worst thing that we can do is change. Sometimes God wants us exactly where we are, exactly how we are. But it's not a message that we often hear, is it? So today, I want to encourage you to stay. Stay where you are for as long as God calls you to be where you are. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul writes some words to a group of believers who wondered whether they needed to change things up in their life. They wanted to be faithful. 
They wanted to be in the place where God wanted them to be, and they were thinking that it couldn't possibly be staying in the same state that they were. Now, we know that there were a lot of things that were messed up in that Corinthian church. A lot of people needed to change a lot of things. But Paul recognized as he was preaching this need for so much to change, there was also the need for some people to be reminded that they shouldn't change a thing. Have a look at these words with me, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 17 through 24, and we'll see that this idea of staying goes way beyond geographical constraints. Nevertheless, Paul says, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them. You see it? This is the first time. Stay as you are. Just as God called them. Now, this is a rule I did lay down in all the churches. Was a man already circumcised when he was called? He should not become uncircumcised. Was a man uncircumcised when he was called? He should not become circumcised. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's command is what counts. Second time, each person should remain in the situation they were when God called them. Now, you understand the significance of this, right? In Acts, we read of the Council of Jerusalem that was evaluating whether Gentiles needed to become culturally Jewish in order to follow Jesus. Circumcision was at the heart of this. There were people who disagreed with what the, uh, the leaders of the church sensed the Spirit of God saying to them. If you, if you remember the story, there was great consternation going around, great debate, and Peter stood up and said, it seems good to the Holy Spirit and to us that a Gentile doesn't need to become a Jew in order to follow Jesus. Read the book of Galatians. There were many believers who didn't believe that that was the right decision. They needed to change something about themselves in order to be in the place where God wanted them to be. But here, Paul repeats the idea we read in Acts that, no, a Gentile doesn't need to become culturally a Jew in order to follow Jesus. They should stay exactly where they are. Oh, that wasn't popular in many churches. It would have been very difficult to stay that way facing the heat of Jewish elitism but stay they should. Paul continues, were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. Although it can, if you can gain your freedom, do so. For the one, look at this, I love this, for the one who was a slave when called to faith in the Lord is the Lord's freed person. Similarly, the one who is free when called is Christ's slave. Do you know that we all, when we came to Christ, exchanged one form of bondedness to another one, for another one? We exchanged a bondedness to sin for a bondedness to Christ. Paul says this is what matters. He says, you were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of human beings. And here we go, time number three, repetition number three. Brothers and sisters, each person is responsible to God should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. Now, Paul wrote these words in a cultural context that's very different to our own. But I think the message still needs to be heard. Yes, our faith requires that we still send people. 
Yes, our faith requires that we are still willing to change those parts of our lives that do not honor Christ. But three times in this passage, Paul tells people to stay exactly where they were as they were. In fact, he says, if you change, your change negatively impacts the gospel. Stay. The whole idea here is we only move when God tells us to move. We only change what God tells us to change. The idea here is that sometimes we can change things and think we're doing a good thing, and in fact, all we're doing is trying to live up to a standard that we think God wants. And that is not freedom. That is not holiness. That is bondage, and that is basically binding. Stay. So throughout the New Testament, you see this idea that it is really important that we stay, because sending is only successful if something stays. Salvation is only successful if what? Something stays. Timothy stayed in Ephesus for four years, and each and every one of us who follows Jesus should be glad that he did. Because the reality is, because he stayed, because leaders stayed, that church made an impact on the world that actually impacts you and me even today. Now, fast forward a few decades. The world has changed. Christianity has changed. More and more people have followed Christ more and more churches are springing up. More and more local leaders are leading local churches in strategic places all over that ancient world. The apostles have died off, and the church is now being led by Ignatius, who is the bishop of Antioch, and the church refused the emperor Trajan's mandate that everybody basically worship the emperor as lord, emperor worship. The church said, we will not do that. Trajan was not happy, and so he had Ignatius arrested. He had him deported to Rome, and while on the way to Rome, Ignatius wrote a number of letters, and we still have some of those. In one of those letters, and this kind of tells you the heart of the man, Ignatius writes that he cannot wait to hear the sound of his own bones being crushed in the jaws of wild animals. What a guy this guy is. But there's one part of this that truly fascinates me. In one of these letters, uh, Ignatius makes reference to the bishop or the leader, the overseer of the church of Ephesus. That man's name? Onesimus. Now, Onesimus is mentioned in 2 Timothy. Onesimus is that runaway slave, we think it's the same person, that runaway slave who, while Paul is in prison in Rome, he meets this runaway slave, he leads this runaway slave to Christ, and then recognizes that there is a past that Onesimus has been running away from. You see, he fled his slave owner, Philemon, or as I would say, Philemon, okay? And Paul says, there is an aspect of your past that you need to be reconciled to. You cannot run away from your past, you need to be reconciled to it. 
And so Paul writes the, the letter of Philemon. He writes the, the letter to the church of Colossae. He writes the letter to the Ephesians. He gives it to, Philemon, uh, to Onesimus, and he sends Onesimus back to the church of Colossae, which met in Philemon's house. Ignatius writes to this leader, and we think that this man led the church after John. So what we have is Timothy, we probably have a period with Tychicus at some point, the apostle John was there. After John, we have Onesimus. And do you remember Corey talking last week about the, the temple of Artemis, the temple of Diana? It was under Onesimus's leadership that the temple cult of Diana was basically wiped out and came to nothing. That church stayed, and that church ultimately was responsible for that temple cult coming down. It played a major part in it. Now, there's more than this. Our history records that Ephesus was actually the place where Paul's letters were collected and ultimately copied. Ephesus is also the place where the canon was closed. So every time you open up the Word of God and God speaks to you, you can trace it back to a church that was faithful and to a people that were faithful in staying when so many people left. More than that, in the 4th century AD, we have the, the uh, Council of Ephesus, and in that Council of Ephesus, essential doctrine was laid down once and for all that we still stand on. Uh, the point of all of that is this, lasting fruit comes through lasting presence. This church has been around 140 years. 125 years this church has been established. Think about all of the changes in the world over that period of time. But everything that we have done has been possible because people stayed, because the church stayed. One of the challenges of modern missions is, and I heard this last week, that the number one reason why missionaries who are sent return is that they cannot get on with the locals to whom they're sent. Often we can spend hundreds of thousands of dollars training people to go, and when they get there, they don't last long and they come home. That's not the way we need to do this thing. Why? Because lasting fruit comes from lasting presence. Listen to me, you may be in situations right now where it is so tempting to quit, it is so tempting tempting to leave. It is so tempting to bail, and God is saying to you, don't quit. Stay right where you are. And you may be saying, God, you don't know how hard this is. You don't know how hard I have to fight for this thing. And God says, learn the lesson of Ephesus. Where there is lasting presence, there will be lasting fruit. Stay there. In the rest of chapter 1, Paul gives Timothy the art of staying well. In the first part, verses 3 to 11, he gives him the, the reason to stay. In verses 12 through 17, he gives him the motivation. He lays out the motivation for staying. And in verses 18 through 20, we discover the, the challenge of staying I just want to unpack these as an encouragement and as a challenge to all of us, beginning in verses 3 through 11 with the 
motivation uh, with the reason to stay. Look at this. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that, that's the purpose clause. That's the reason. So that what? What's the so that? You may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. In other words, the reason that he is to stay there is to contend for the truth. Stand up for the truth. To make sure that the church doesn't deviate into apostasy. Apostasy is a compound word, apo, to move away from and Stasis, which is basically stance. Apostasy is when you move away from a secure stance. He's supposed to stay there to make sure that the church stands firm. This is the idea. Such things, Paul says, all of these endless genealogies in the midst, they promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. The attitude that Timothy was to show as he did this is critical. This is verse 5. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some have departed from these and have turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they're talking about or what they confidently affirm. We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels the ungodly and the sinful, the unholy and the irreligious, for those who uh, kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God which is entrusted to me. And Paul is saying, Timothy, I entrust that to you. Guard the gospel. Make sure that the church stands firm on the truth. But Timothy, he says, there is a right way to do this and a wrong way to do this. As you stand for the gospel, make sure that you do it in love. The goal of this command, Paul says, is love with a sincere conscience and faith. See, Paul recognizes that in the context of Ephesus, with being a place with so many people coming in and out, it was full of all of these crazy kind of ideas. And we're going to see this in chapter 2. And Paul says, Timothy, listen, as you contend for the gospel in that place, it is going to be possible for you to do the right thing with the wrong attitude. It is going to be possible for you to be so focused on the truth that you will actually be hating evil rather than loving good. I don't want you to do that, Paul says. I want you to do this in love. As I was thinking about how to explain this to you, I uh, was watching Wales play rugby against Ireland yesterday, and we lost, and we lost badly. And what I discovered as I was thinking about how do I get over the idea that the more emotionally connected I am to something, the more negative I'm going to be if it goes wrong. I'm watching a game where my team is losing. Any of you get slightly critical when your team is losing and you're really connected to it? You can't be Welsh without liking rugby. And we played pretty well for long periods of the second half. But every time we would get in a position to score points and cut the deficit, somebody would do something stupid. And I would go, God, not again. Not again. 
Do you know the more emotionally connected you are to something, the more likely it is that your expressions are going to be negative when something goes wrong than positive? That, that's just the way it works. See, if you are emotionally connected, emotionally vested, spiritually vested in the things of God, and you see things going wrong, if you're not careful, the default reaction will be hating evil and all that goes with that rather than loving good. Let me tell you what that looks like relationally. If you're a person who hates evil, then you are going to be a person who enjoys only a few close relationships, but you have many strained relationships and many cautious relationships because people do not know what to do with you. Do you think that is a powerful uh, advertisement for the gospel? But if you are a person who loves good, you are going to enjoy a lot of healthy relationships because people know that being with you is good for their soul. The reason this is important right now, the church, the evangelical church, the Bible-believing church in America is faced with ideologies and thoughts and philosophies that are creeping in from so many different angles, and we need to stand firm to make sure that we do not go into apostasy. But as we do this, we have a choice. We can either do this by looking down on what is evil and straining all of the relationships with people who matter, or we can do this by speaking the truth in love. And when we do that, the door to relationships is open. The door to communication is open. The door to the gospel is open. And it is far better to speak the truth in love than it is to stand against evil. Do you know this was a problem that the Ephesian church had? We know that from Scripture and we know it from history. Think about the, the letter that the Apostle John gave to the seven churches. One of those was to the church in Ephesus. In that church, uh, to that church in Ephesus, Jesus says, I have this against you. You have forgotten your first love. Or it could also be translated, you have forgotten the love you had at first. In other words, you started off showing love to one another so well, but as time has gone on and the challenges have not gotten any easier, you find yourself getting more angry and more resentful. The Council of Ephesus that I talked about, 480, one of the most contentious councils in the history of the church. It caused a split that divided Western and Eastern churches that still exists to this day. Did you know that it is possible for us to stand firm on the gospel, to guard it, but to do it in such a way that sets the gospel back rather than takes it forward? Paul says, Timothy, listen to you. There is a reason that I placed you there, but I want your attitude to be the right one, not the wrong one. Now, you remember what they did to Paul in Ephesus, right? They took him into that theater with 50,000 people, and they gave him a hard time. What kind of person can show that kind of love to a 
group of people who does that to them. The kind of person, and we're going to see this in the next part of the text, who recognizes that it is far easier to forgive when you realize how much you've been forgiven. So Paul says, God the gospel. God the gospel, but do it in love. In the second part of the text here from verses 12 through 17, Paul talks about the motivation for staying faithful. Okay, Timothy, I want to get to the, to the heart of this. What is it that makes it possible for us to stay faithful? We see this in verses 12 through 17. Paul goes on, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has given me strength that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. The point of the letter is that Timothy has been appointed the same way. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. And this, you just see his relationship with Jesus coming out in this next part, don't you? But the grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. That's why he could forgive people. It's easy to forgive people, to love people, when you know how much God loved you and has forgiven you. He goes on, but for this very reason I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Whenever I read that, I just feel that Paul is in his element here. If you read the letter to Ephesians, there are a couple of parts when Paul prays in Ephesus in the Ephesian letter uh, that the sentences just go on for verses. It's as if Paul is caught up in the majesty of Jesus. He forgot to put a period at the end of a sentence. It's pretty bad grammar, but I'll tell you what, it's pretty powerful stuff. What Paul is telling Timothy here is, listen, your motivation for staying in Ephesus and serving the gospel has to be driven by the depth of your relationship with Jesus. I've talked an awful lot in this message about the connection between sending and staying. But the reality is there's also a connection between coming and going. It is impossible to be sent and to serve faithfully while sent without actually coming to Jesus and learning how to sit at his feet. The only way that you and I can sustain faithfulness is if we sustain intimacy. And whenever you read Paul writing to the Ephesians, over and over again, we get glimpses into his passion for Jesus. Can I just speak to you as a pastor for a moment? My heart for you is that you would draw so close to Jesus. Because whatever you need is found at his feet. Imagine with me that Jonas, my 23-year-old son, came home to Vipka and I one day and said, Mom, Dad, I just want you to know, I'm leaving the family. 
Bibkanah would look at him and go, why? Imagine with me if he said, you don't feed me. I'm like, what do you mean you don't, we don't feed you? The, the refrigerator is full. The pantry is full. You're a 23-year-old man. Feed yourself. <laughs> I really believe that there is a connection between some of us serving faithfully and being fulfilled where God has called us to be. And the fact that we do not know how to feed ourselves by sitting at the feet of Jesus. You know, you will not become spiritually mature in a day, but you will become spiritually mature daily. And it requires you to eat more than one meal a day, uh, more than one meal a week, a week. It requires you to feed daily. You cannot read Paul's writings to the Ephesians without recognizing that his prolonged faithfulness was an overflow of his intimacy with Jesus. In fact, the success of his sending is directly related to the intimacy of his sitting. Friends, listen to me. We can't stay until we come. We can't be sent until we come. And Paul tells Timothy in this part, Timothy, I want you to be faithful, but faithfulness is an overflow of intimacy. My prayer for you is that you would know that kind of intimacy with Jesus. Because when that's the kind of intimacy that we enjoy, obeying God is so easy. I heard someone say the other day that the vast majority of Christians have never had to obey God. I was shocked, and I'm like, what do you mean? And then he said this, the vast majority of Christians have never had to obey God because most of the time, all we've ever done is agree with God. God asks us to do something that we like, that we find okay, and so we agree with Him. But when God asks us to do something that we don't like, that is very difficult, that requires sticking with it, we can't do it, and we back off. The only way Timothy could stick with it in a place like that is because he sat at Jesus' feet. I don't know what that looks like for you, but I encourage you, if you want to stay faithful to Jesus where He's called you, learn to sit at His feet. That has to be the motivation for faithfulness. Wrapping up here, verses 18 through 20, Paul talks about the challenge that Timothy is going to face, and that is basically staying wise. It's fighting wisely in the battle. Have a look at verses 18 through 20. This gets personal here. Timothy, my son, I'm giving you this command in keeping with the prophecies once made about you so that by recalling them you may fight the battle well. Do you see how personal this is? You may fight the battle well. Remember, Timothy, God called you. God spoke a word over your life. Do you see the intimacy of the relationship? And there again, we have faith in a good conscience. And then it talks about people here, Alexander and Hymenaeus, who 
shipwrecked their faith and were handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. What we see here is, Timothy, listen to me. There is a call of God in your life, and I want to say, if you're a follower of Jesus, there's a call of God in your life. It begins with stay where you are until God calls you to be somewhere else. It requires personal connection with Jesus, but it will also require that you fight the battle well. The question here is, how do we fight well? The answer is not by fighting the way the world fights. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul uses warfare language, and it's pretty clear what our warfare involves and does not involve. This is what he says. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. See, we are in a war, whether we like it or not. It is a good war because it is the battle for souls. But wage war we must, but not as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. You see, it is possible for you to underplay the significance of the weapons at your disposal in actually ushering in God's peace, God's power, God's rule, God's reign into certain places. It is possible for you to think that the weapons of the world are more powerful than the weapons of the Spirit of God that basically are based on the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul says, when we use the right weapons, we demolish arguments in every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to make it obedient to Christ. In other words, we do not fight well when we use the weapons of the world. Now, what are the weapons of the the Christian then? Well, we'll discover this in this series, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. We're told to avoid debates, clever words, indescribable logic. See, we think we fight the way that God wants when we're cleverer than the opposition. No. That's the way the world fights. Paul says to Timothy, avoid that. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. This is how we do it. We teach, we rebuke, we correct, we train. This is how we fight. Now again, compared to the weapons of the world, we can think that Standing on Scripture, proclaiming Scripture, discerning what God is doing and responding appropriately is not the most powerful way to contend for the gospel, but it is. And it is because it's based on an authority that is far stronger than any other authority. The team are going to come back to lead us in a song, but as they do, I want you to remember that when Paul wrote to the, Corinthians, uh, to the Ephesians, he recognized that he was writing to a group of people who were afraid of men in uniform. They were afraid of Roman soldiers with their short swords on their, on their waist and their spear in their hand, and these Roman soldiers could walk into a hostile crowd of ordinary citizens, and as they would walk in there, they would be able to dispel the crowd. Partly that was to do with the uniform. Partly that was to do with the weaponry. But more than that, it had everything to do with the authority that these people stood there with, the authority of the emperor of Rome. And in Ephesians chapter 6, Paul writes of armor that the Christian has. It's an armor that looks insignificant to so many people but it is an armor that is given to us with the full authority of God Himself. It's the armor of the Spirit. You see, when you and I stand on the gospel, desiring to speak the truth in love, 
God's authority, God's anointing has the power to basically destroy strongholds and set people free. And what Paul is telling Timothy, I believe, is what God is telling us. Remember that. Remember that. Remembering the power of God, remembering the call of God on you is essential for you staying staying faithful and serving well. Look at this, this scripture. Do not neglect the gift which was given you through prophecy when the body of elders laid their hands on you. Do you see it again, this personal part of this? Now, let me just say this. Uh, in this instance, it looks like the gift was conferred on Timothy when the elders laid their hands on them, but that doesn't mean to say the gifts are always and only imparted to people when the elders lay their hands on them. Just because it happened once that way doesn't mean that it happens that way every time. A number of other examples are there. But the point is this. Paul is telling Timothy over and over again, Timothy, if there is a weakness in you, it is thinking that you do not have what it takes, that God can't use you. Numerous times Paul will say, stand up, Timothy. You are too timid, Timothy. Friends, if we're going to stay faithful, we need to learn how to fight well. And a key part of that is recognizing the authority that God has given to you as a child of God. And in through the series, we were going to unpack that. Now, our team are going to sing a song, and it's a new song. It's called Refiner. It's a Maverick City song. And the words are just powerful. They're powerful because it just describes the way that we're supposed to respond to the work of God in our own hearts. And I pray that as I've gone through this message, something of what I've said has actually stuck. I pray that in some way, shape or form, something of the Spirit of God has hooked you and you're realizing there's something that needs to change. There's something I need to lay at the foot of the cross. As you listen to the song, won't you just make the response that you need to make in order for you to stay faithful and to fight well? God has a call on your life. God has a call on, this, on our church's life. God has a call on the churches in this town's life. And for future generations to be impacted in the way that we've been impacted by that church in Ephesus, we need to stay faithful. We need to stand on the truth of the gospel. So let's commit to doing that. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for the wonderful gift of Jesus. Father, I thank you that you have called us and set us apart. You have gifted us your Holy Spirit who mediates your presence to us. And Father, as we listen to this song, I pray that something that you have just awoken in our own hearts would be recognized, would be accepted. And I pray, Father, that the response we make to your work in us would just seal that word to our hearts through your spirit. God, we thank you that we are your people. We thank you that you are our God. Refine us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.